Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2020 Dublin Festival of History, journalist and author Hadley Freeman discusses her book, House of Glass, the story and secrets of a 20th century Jewish family. The episode is moderated by journalist Sarah Carey and was recorded via Zoom on the 25th of September 2020. A very good evening to everybody. And I really want to thank the literary or the Festival of History for asking me back again this year and particularly with the book that they've given me this year. I have to admit, despite the fact that I have a degree in history, to my shame, I have avoided Holocaust literature. The scale of the evil and the disaster that it was for so many people is something that just disturbed me so profoundly. You know, I I couldn't face into it. And then some years ago, I was very privileged to meet the Dublin Art Gallery owner, Oliver Sears, who had been reared in London. And his mother and grandmother had escaped from a train on its way to Treblinka. They were Polish Jews. And the story that he told me was just extraordinary. And by coincidence, he's a childhood friend of Philippe Sands, uh, the French-English international human rights lawyer, who, of course, wrote East West Street that many of you might be familiar with, which is an extraordinary account, not just of his family's experience, also from Poland uh, during the war, but of the history of the legal concepts around the Nuremberg trials, uh, crimes against humanity and genocide. So I got to meet him and learn even more about it. And then Bert Wright from the festival handed me House of Glass by Hadley Freeman. Um, Hadley was on the fashion desk of The Guardian for eight years, but of course is now one of its most popular columnists. And she has traced the history of her grandmother, Sala, and her three brothers, Henri, Alex and Jack, who were born in also in Poland in what was part of the then Austro-Hungarian Empire, came to France, Salah came to America and their story of how they survived and the deaths in their family uh, during World War II is just extraordinary. It was a two-sitting job to read the book and um, I heartily recommend it to you. So Hadley, a very good evening and thank you for joining us um, this evening. I want to start off by asking you, you know, you grew up in America and in, in from what I gather was a fairly secular household and I don't think being Jewish seemed to be a huge part of your identity then. And I don't think there was much talk about your family and your grandmother and where she had come from and what had happened. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you came to gradually discover this history and why it became important to track it down? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, Sarah, for the lovely introduction. Um, So I grew up in New York and we were very much not um, particularly religious. I mean, we certainly celebrated all the Jewish holidays. I went to Hebrew school. We went to synagogue for, you know, the big things. But, you know, I, you know, by most, uh, well, certainly by Orthodox Jew standards, we were not very religious. Um, it, it was kind of a part of my identity, but I didn't see it in terms of the historical part. I sort of just thought being part of a minority was more my identity. Because you're right, we didn't talk about my grandmother um, or her history. She was my father's mother. As far as I knew, she was French. Uh, she had a very French accent. I knew she'd come from France to America to marry my grandfather. And and that was pretty much what I knew, really. So when did you begin to get an inkling that there was an awful lot more going on there? Well, I mean, I don't want to credit myself with any precocious observation, but uh, when I was five, uh, my parents took me and my sister to Europe for the first time. They took us to France to meet my grandmother's brothers, um, who at, uh, live at that time were Henri and Alex. 
And we all went to Deauville, which is this beach town in Normandy. Um, and my grandmother came with us. And there were, I mean, I was five. So obviously my powers of deduction should be seen through that prism. But there was, you know, fighting, like the adults were all fighting with each other, mainly Alex uh, and uh, Henri's wife, Sonia. Um, and a little bit Alex and Sala. He was quite snappy with her. And I'd never seen adults fight. So I sort of knew this was different. Um, and I could see how sad my grandmother was my, when we all arrived um, and we all met up in the hotel dining room. I turned around and I saw my grandmother watching us in the doorway and she was crying. Um, and that obviously stuck in your mind. I mean, that's very scary for a child to see an adult crying. And my grandmother was quite scary to me in a weird way. She was incredibly gentle and lovely and elegant, but she was sad um, and radiated something that I found repellent is like, would be the word I would use. I don't mean like gross. I mean, like it repulsed me. It pushed me away from her. And what she radiated was neediness. And that's quite hard for a child to understand from an adult, I think, particularly um, if you're a very spoiled child. like I was. Um, so almost, there was always something going on. And then um, when I was in my teens and we moved to London, uh, my dad used to take us to France a lot to have lunch, uh, to Paris, to have lunch with my grandmother's brother, Alex, who was still alive. And by this point, my grandmother was dead. Henri was dead. Alex was the last survivor. He lived in this ridiculously glamorous apartment on the Avenue Foch, which is like, well, I don't, I, that's terrible. I don't know the Dublin equivalent, but in London, you know, we would say Bond Street, you know, like there's kind of the ritziest street in Paris. Um, and you'd walk into his apartment and a butler would open the door, first of all, very weird. Um, and all the walls would be covered in you know, the greatest artists really of the 19th centuries, uh, 19th and 20th centuries. So Picasso, Matisse, Van Gogh, Monet, Manet, like in his apartment, it was so weird. And you know, I was a teenager at this point. And even I thought it was a bit weird to <laughs> go see my great uncle. And there was a Matisse in his bathroom, like literally above the toilet inscribed to Alex, you know, Amitié, Henri Matisse. I mean, that seemed, that seemed kind of a bit unusual, particularly in my family, which is very much not glamorous. So that was strange. And the disparity between Alex's life and my grandmother's life, she had been a kind of lower middle-class housewife in Miami was notable. Um, but I just didn't want to think about it because thinking about my grandmother's sadness made me feel, I would say uncomfortable. It made me feel guilty basically. And then Alex died in 1999 and they were all dead. And it was just then that I graduated from university. I was thinking about being a writer and suddenly I just couldn't stop thinking about them. And that was 21 years ago. So that's how long this whole process has gone on for. And, you know, I, I think that's really interesting, the way we think about the previous generations and how as we grow older, their experience start to matter to us. And that's something I want to come back to. So tell me about them then. Start off in their childhood and that area of Poland that, that was formerly part of the empire. So it turned out that despite all of them, to me, seeming like the embodiment of Frenchness, particularly my grandmother, um, who had a very strong French accent despite living in America for 50 years, turned out that, that they actually weren't French at all. They were Polish. Um, and they were born in this tiny little Jewish town called Sharnoff, uh, which was basically a shtetl um, and was about 18 kilometers from Auschwitz. And the two of them were sister towns. And it was very poor, largely orthodox. Um, their parents were extremely poor and they lived in this, you know, sort of very, you know, poverty stricken way. 
but they were, you know, very together. They were very close as a family. And then World War One happened, and their father, Reuben, went off, and he was gassed very badly. Didn't die, but he came back, and he was very injured. Um, now, I should say a little bit about the children. So, Henri was the oldest. Um, well, first of all, no, their, their names weren't those French names. That was the other thing. They were, Not only were they not French, they weren't the names that I thought they were. So Henri was Yehuda, uh, Jacques was Yaakov, uh, Alex was Sender, and Salah was Salah, although she did change her name briefly, but before I met her. So there they all were growing up in Poland. Yehuda, the oldest, was a very studious, serious boy. He helped his mother out. Um Jakob was this kind of gentle but slightly weak boy who would be easily led astray by his naughty younger brother, Sender, who was very naughty, always skipping school, getting into mischief and had these great plans. And then there was Salah, who was quite uh, sickly. She'd had tuberculosis as a child. So the father comes back from war. He's basically incapacitated by his lungs, which because he was gassed. Um, the oldest children start to leave Poland because at this point, after World War One, Poland suffered terribly during World War One. You know, everybody's marching back and forth across it. Obviously, it didn't do so well in the war. It was economically devastated. And uh, the reaction to this was to blame the Jews. The nationalists and the Catholic groups um, blamed the Jews. And so the Jews were collaborating with foreign powers. And as a result, pogroms started, which are attacks on Jews and Jewish towns. And the first town in Poland to suffer a pogrom was Sharnov. And Sender wrote about this later, Alex, as I then knew him, and described seeing his own teachers and his own neighbors uh, trying to kill his family during the pogroms. So slowly the children started to leave. Um, Henri, uh, Yehuda, then Henri went off to um, university and Yakov and Sender went to Poland, even though they were only 18 and 14 years old, they went off on their own. And Salah stayed behind with her mother until their father died. And at which point they all went to Paris. So family eventually and Henri joined them all in Paris. Um, and at this point, their lives were still quite typical of uh, Jewish refugees. Eastern European Jews, uh, when they were fleeing the violence that was starting to rise up in the bu- and the anti-Semitism that was bubbling up in Eastern Europe after World War One, they went to either New York, which is always the biggest place, which is where I grew up, um, Warsaw, although for some that was too close still to the violence, or Paris. Paris was the third most popular destination. The glasses all went to Paris, and they all went into the industry where a lot of uh, Jewish immigrants worked, which is fashion. Now, when I say fashion, I don't mean like working for Armani. I mean like basically working as tailors. Uh, Yaakov did that and um, changed his name to Jacques. Uh, Yehuda, who now changed his name to Henri, did that. The one who refused was Alex. Alex was not going to be a little Jewish tailor. He wanted to be a couturier. So he started to train as a couturier. And Salah, who changed her name to Sarah when she got to France, um, went to sanatorium to have her lungs healed. So now they're all in Paris. Eventually, Sally gets out. She starts working in fashion, too, or as the Jews call it, the schmata trade. And this is where they are before World War II starts. And on that issue of changing their names and the question of how they would adjust to their life in France and to what extent they would maintain their Jewish identity or their Polish identity, how much of that was an issue within the family? So it was really this interesting divide, actually. I'm really interested in um, immigrants and assimilation. Um, and it was often the case with uh, Jewish immigrants coming into Paris that they kept their um, 
immigrant status. They, they immigrants coming into Paris, Jewish immigrants tended to live in uh, the Marais, which was basically the Jewish ghetto in Paris. They were poor. They all worked. It, they mainly all worked in, ta- in, you know, kind of sewing clothes. They were tailors, and they did not mix with the French Jews. The French Jews wanted nothing to do with them. You have to remember France had had this period of really kind of terrible anti-Semitism. The whole reckoning with the Dreyfus scandal. Um, things did get better after World War One, but there was still this fear of being dragged back. So the French Jews wanted nothing to do with all these poor immigrants who came to France who seemed to embody the worst stereotypes of Jewishness to a lot of them. They were poor. They all spoke Yiddish. They were wearing these heavy black clothes. They were not fitting in. They were not bourgeoisie. Um, so the, the foreign Jews reacted similarly. They just stayed to themselves. They felt not necessarily that welcome. This was their identity. The Glass children felt quite different. Their mother was like a kind of typical Jewish immigrant. She did never learn French the whole, her whole life. She never learned French. She just talked in Yiddish and stayed in the Jewish area. Jacques, the second son, was kind of the same. He saw himself primarily Jewish. His friends were all immigrant Jews. He stayed there. The three other children, Henri, Alex, and Salah, arrived in France, arrived in Paris, looked around, were like, this is a heck of a lot better than this pogrom in Poland we just came from that basically killed our father. This is amazing. And we're like, yeah, screw this. We're not Polish. We're French. I mean, they were the ones who changed their names first. They, they, Henri made it legal. I'm sure Alex did too. I couldn't find the documentation for that. And they became as French as possible, the three of them. They dressed French. They made French clothes. They stopped speaking Polish right away. They spoke in really refined, main, well, Henri and Salzburg in really refined French. Alex had a slight conflict in that he was very proud of being Jewish. So he wanted to keep a bit of a Yiddish accent. He definitely wanted nothing to do with Poland. Um, and so they were unusual in terms of Jewish immigrants. They totally sloughed off their old, old identity. So we get into the 1930s. And they've been fleeing anti-Semitism, where he's described Alex then Sender remembered very clearly people that he knew coming to kill mm. them. Mm. Um, how aware were they of what was to come and how did they decide that they were going to deal with that? So they, Alex and, um, and uh, Henri in particular, were in a kind of fortunate position in terms of becoming aware of anti-Semitism. So like I said, France kind of moved past a lot of its anti-Semitism after the Dreyfus scandal. And then after World War I, Jews are becoming more accepted in France, not, not least because France needed Jewish immigrants to make up the workforce after all the people they lost in World War I. Um, but then the Great Depression hit. And by the time it blows over to France, 1931, there's you know, a huge depression in France. And you know who, who do the French nationalist, Catholic, right-wing press blame? Oh, yeah, the Jews. So Anti-Semitism starts rising again in France as the economy starts to tank. Um, on top of that, remember what was going on in Germany at this point. Obviously, Hitler comes into power in 1933. The Jews are fleeing from Germany. So all these immigrant Jews are now more coming to France. France is basically not best pleased about this situation in a lot of ways. More anti-Semitic legislation comes in where immigrant Jews can work, what industries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, for a lot of immigrant Jews, including the brother Jacques, um, they thought, we don't need to worry so much about this. France has let us in. We'll be okay. This was what Jack thought. This country let us in. Why would they torture us? Why would they, why would they bother us the way Poland did? Alex and Henri were in a different situation. Henri was married to this um, very amusing woman, Sonia, my great aunt. 
who I did know, who came from what is now the Ukraine. Sonia was very educated. She was kind of an aristocrat in the Ukraine and Jewish. And she could speak seven languages totally fluently. And she kept in touch with people in Poland, in the Ukraine, in Germany. And she would get letters from her family in those countries. So she knew what was coming. She, so she had a good insight that way. And Henri could get it from her. Alex was in an even more interesting position. He became friends with a lot of uh, artists when he was in Paris, uh, and particularly the Jewish artists, people like Moisha Kisling and Jules Pascal. The art industry in France became anti-Semitic kind of before anyone else, which is sort of interesting. It's obviously a very conservative industry in Paris. Art is very much part of France's national identity. And in the early 1930s, when you look back at old art magazines, they were becoming incredibly anti-Semitic. Um, they didn't like all these Jewish artists arriving in. They wanted to keep French art, keep its integrity, as they put it. They wanted to keep it French, not have these Eastern European influences coming in. And suddenly Alex's friends couldn't get their art shown anywhere. They couldn't get it sold, couldn't get it covered in magazines. So he knew what was coming too. And this very much informed what happened next in their lives. So what did happen next? <laughs> so what did. So, <laughs> my poor grandmother, 26, Salah, living in the Marais with her mother. She is now working her dream job. She's working in fashion, engaged to a socialist dentist who was probably Eastern European too, and very happy. One day she comes home from work. Her mother says, Alex is coming around with a friend. Seems unusual. Alex never wanted to come around. He's very grumpy with their mother all the time they fought. Fine. Alex turns up in the apartment um, with this very tall, mustachioed American who, to my grandmother, looked like John Wayne. And Alex said, come, this is my great friend, Bill. He's visiting. Slightly strange. How would Alex know an American? Whatever. They come into the flat. They're all eating dinner. The American is staring at Salah throughout this meal. Salah is, you know, quite young, innocent, 26-year-old, been in a hospital for about 10 years, just started working. Suddenly in the middle of the dinner, the American says, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. I'm completely in love with you. I must marry you. Come with me to America. I will take care of you. Salah is just like, who is this disgusting, crass American cowboy? I'm marrying my socialist dentist. This is gross. Um, and Alex is just there smiling at her. He's not stopping this. She's, my grandmother's completely mystified by this. Anyway, eventually the American leaves. Alex turns to her and says, you have to marry this man. So it's just, what? And he said, you have to marry this man. He can get you out of this country. The Nazis are coming. Then you can get us out of the country. If you don't marry this man, you are condemning all of us to death. Salah is slightly panicking about this. She goes to see her brother, Henri, and he agrees that she has to marry this man because they know what's coming. And so just a few weeks later, Salah goes to America very reluctantly, heartbroken, having left her fiance to marry this stranger. Alex sends her off saying, don't worry, he's my best friend. He's a millionaire. He lives on Park Avenue. He works in the fashion industry. It's your dream situation. What are you complaining about? Sal arrives in New York where the boat docks, gets off, gets in the car with this stranger who she completely doesn't know and realizes he's not Alex's best friend. Alex had literally met him that day on the streets in Paris. He does not live in Manhattan. He lives in Long Island. He's not a millionaire. He runs a gas station. There is nothing. He's literally just some guy that Alex had met. And that is the story of how my grandparents got together. <laughs> and... So at the end of her life and that sadness that you witnessed, you know, were there any positives out of that relationship for her and that life in America? Was she grateful that it 
meant that she didn't have to face the Nazis? Did she resent the brothers for making her do it? Did you get any sense that there was any good that came out of it? Apart from yourself, obviously. <laughs> the miracle of me. Um, <laughs> um, she never resented Alex, um, amazingly. Um, I mean, she was really unhappy there. And I didn't really understand how unhappy until I found the old passenger lists. Um, from, so she arrived in 1937. And between 1937 and 1939, she went back to France multiple times and then came back again so you know basically pushed back up the gangplank probably by alex and sent her back and the only reason she stopped going back is she found out she was pregnant with my dad and then the war started sorry the war started um so she had this strong melancholia um throughout her life she was not living the life she wanted right to my grandfather who she really never got on with um he loved her she just thought he was this crass american um she was not living this glamorous life in paris um and that was incredibly painful for her. But she wasn't one to resent. I don't even know if she was, I mean, I'm sure she did think, you know, what my life could have been like, but it wasn't even that she compared that or she just wasn't in the right timeline. <laughs> that makes it sound yeah. futurish, but she, she wasn't in the right timeline. Well, then her brothers. So maybe we should turn to Jack um, and, and his fate, because that's sad. Yes. So Jack always believed France would protect him. And while um, she, he went off to fight in the war briefly before France, um, you know, fell before France uh, and fought in the foreign legion, he became, he was taken prisoner. He managed to escape and he came back to Paris to be with his wife, who was also his cousin, Mila. There was then this announcement that all Jews had to register in a census in Paris. Henri and Alex flat out refused. They knew no good comes from giving your details if you're Jew. Jacques just said, no, this is just an administrative thing. So he signed, put his name down on this census. uh, And he then a few weeks later received a little note under his door telling him to report to the Marais at a certain time, certain day. Um, And he did. And this was the first roundup of the Jews in Paris. So he was taken in the very first roundup. He was taken to this French concentration camp. And I have to admit, when I, before I started, I didn't even know France had concentration camps. But actually, it really very much did. He was taken to this concentration camp called Pitivier. And he was there for a while. And um, I found uh, in my grandmother's belongings photos that he'd sent her from Pitivier of him with his cabin mates. I mean, it was a concentration camp, but it wasn't like Auschwitz. They weren't gassing people. They were just had all these Jews there making them work. Um, and he was allowed out one day to visit his newborn daughter, which was incredibly unusual. The archivists I met, um, who sort of study the French concentration camp. So they pretty much never encountered that before. And he went back to Paris and there's his wife, Mila with their new baby, Lily in bed and his brothers and sister-in-law are there. And Sonia and Henri and, and Alex are just like, okay, you've got to run now. We can protect you. We can help you get you stuff on the black market. Um, we'll help hide your wife and daughter. And Mila, he looked to Mila for guidance because Jack never knew what to do. He always asked other people what to do. And Mila said, Il a donné sa parole. He gave his word. And so Jack went back to Petitvier. And maybe I shouldn't give away everything, but uh, let's just say that ending was not. It ended badly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, but Henri and Alex, they survived and thrived actually there's an amazing success story out of this so i know and it's it makes it even more poignant that my grandmother you know fled 
And she, I mean, I don't know if she ever really looked at her brothers, but her brothers, for various reasons, um, a lot to do with what happened to them during the war, were hugely successful afterwards and extremely wealthy and um, had led very, very glamorous and happy lives after the war. Like they are the exceptions of what happened to the foreign Jews in France. Um, and that makes it even more poignant. My grandmother was living this really tedious, culture-free life in her in her view, um, in kind of lower middle class Long Island, um, surrounded by no one. You know, no one was there interested in art or any of the things that she loved. But yes, Henri and Sonia managed to stay hidden in Paris throughout the war, which is again almost unheard of for Polish Jews. And I found after my grandmother died all these denunciation letters that had been stuck on their door that Sonia then sent to my grandmother to show her what was going on in Paris, saying there is a Jewish family living in this apartment, you should arrest them, all that. And Sonia would rip them off and send them to my grandmother. And Alex, I mean, Alex's story was so bonkers. I mean, he used to tell us that he was arrested during the war and escaped from the train, which sounded so improbable. I didn't believe it. And I was looking through the passenger list and the records, and it's true, he did escape. He was arrested in Nice um, uh, and uh, tortured and put on the train to the concentration camp. And he punched a hole uh, in the ceiling and threw and climbed up and threw himself over. Now, what I couldn't figure out was what he did then. And for a long time, I was slightly worried that he was a collaborator and that's how he survived the war. A lot of fashion designers, he was, he was a fashion designer. A lot of fashion designers were collaborators um, in Paris. People like Coco Chanel is probably the most famous one. Um, so, it's, I won't give this away, <laughs> everything, but I found out what he did and uh, it is pretty, it is amazing. Um, yeah. So just given the success that they had, why do you think they never talked about it? So, you know, I think there's this stereotype of Jews always banging on about the Holocaust. <laughs> to that stereotype. But actually a lot of Jews um, who went through it were extremely traumatized by the Holocaust. And, um, and my family was. And uh, they were also terrified, particularly the ones who stayed in France, mainly Henri and Sonia, that it would happen again. And, you know, why wouldn't they think that? This has happened once, their neighbors turned against them, why wouldn't it happen again? And they were terrified of drawing attention to themselves all their lives and terrified of something happening to their children. And they just didn't want to talk about it. If they just pretended it hadn't happened, then it hadn't happened. And also, you know, they were of a generation, they were all born in the 1900s, People didn't talk about trauma, you know, like what, what would be the point? You know, we all have grandparents who would just be like, come on, get over it. Da, da, da. You know, there was none of this, you know, Oprah Winfrey, let's all sit around and have a chat thing. It, and also they'd all been through it. So kind of what was for, to their perspective, why should they complain when everyone had been through this? Now, obviously we see this differently now, but, um, but for them, it was particularly once who stayed in France, it was complete fear that this would happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think there was an effect from not talking about it? You know, did, oh, did that silence in itself do do harm? Oh, completely. And um, it made, I mean, it made Henri, he became a very, he became a very successful person, but he became a very anxious person as well. And for Henri and Sonia in particular, it made them basically try to give up being Jewish. I mean, they really played down their Jewishness. They had a daughter after the war. They did not raise her Jewish. She had children, my cousins. They were not raised Jewish. Like, that Jewish identity just went. Um, Alex was always very proud of being a Jew, always described himself as a Jew. Um, But, you know, in no way was he religious. um, And he was also sure 
that France would turn against him again. And even though he was incredibly wealthy, he never put his money in the banks. He never trusted France again. And it, that kind of broke his heart because he loved it. Um, the one who still idealized France all her life was my grandmother because she hadn't been there during the war and France hadn't tried to kill her. Um, so she was able to maintain this very idealized image of it. Um, interestingly, Henri just became even more determined to assimilate. So once he got money, he you know would buy very fine French suits and fine French cars. And he just wanted to be as French as possible because he thought that was the way to stay safe. Um, so today for Jewish people, um, I mean, you wrote recently that you thought being Jewish has never been more important than in the last five years. Hmm. Um, and I obviously in the UK, there's been, you know, so much controversy about anti-Semitism, particularly in the Labour Party. You know, how does it make you feel today to know that you still have to talk about this because being Jewish still matters? Um, yeah, it was. I mean, I'm sure the rise of nationalism, certainly in America, America, uh, the far right on the continent, and yes, the Labour Party thing here is what finally motivated me to start writing this book. I mean, I spent you know eighteen years researching this. Thing. <laughs> something had to something had to push me over the edge at some point, and it turned out to be Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I mean, I find it. Uh, you know, from the right, I, I'm never surprised. I mean, the right loves to demonize. Um, vulnerable minorities, you know, whatever. And I understand that people don't see Jews as vulnerable. And I'm sort of surprised that I have to have this conversation still. Um, You know, someone said to me the other day, well, people don't see Jews as vulnerable because they're rich. Uh, I thought, well, first of all, um, we're not all Philip Green. Yes. Reminder. Um, And secondly, also, even if we were, so the heck what? I mean, you know, lots of Jews who were rich had everything taken away from them in World War II. And, you know, we've seen all those kind of movies where, you know, Jews have all their paintings and their lovely houses taken away. So, I mean, that is not a protection against anything. Mm. Um, So that's always uh, an interesting one. Um, It's more of a surprise, I think, from the left. Um, and I find that more upsetting because obviously that's more, that's closer to my political home. Um, and I just find it sort of disgraceful. I found it really like kind of nauseating, to be honest, during the whole labor's thing when people who weren't Jewish were there going, oh, yes, but that's not anti-Semitic or, oh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn said that's totally fine or what Chris Williamson said that's totally fine. And you just think, would you tell you know a gay person what is and isn't homophobic would you tell a black person what is and isn't racist like no that goes against everything that the left liberal left liberalism is supposed to stand for you don't get to define a minority's oppression the minority can speak for itself um and yet that is not true apparently with jews when people feel very entitled to decree what is and isn't anti-semitic so do you think all that division in the Labour Party, and I don't want to dwell too much you know, on the political side of it, do you think that blister has been pierced um, and that progress has been made? Or do you still think you know, that really strong vein of anti-Semitism is still there? Well, I, you know, I really just thought this was such a niche thing, that kind of far left anti-Semitism, that kind of you know, social justice party. Um, uh, socialist, sorry, socialist uh, party thing, but um, apparently not. <laughs> it seemed to go pretty big, and there are a lot of people still who, um, who who still talk about it. And whenever I write anything about, for example, the Tory Party, um, you know, some, you know, my sister is a nurse, and writing about how the Tories have been handling the coronavirus and stuff in Britain, I will always get people in comments under the article or tweeting at me or emailing me saying, "Well, don't you feel bad now for criticizing the Labour Party?" And I just think, 
<laughs> would you tell off, you know, again, sorry to use, you know, this comparison again, but would you tell off a black person if they'd complained about a racist politician and be like, well, you know, on your head be it now. You just think, you know, two things can be true. Like, I think, yes, the Tory party is terrible. And yes, also Jeremy Corbyn should not have allowed this to foster and arguably been Semitic himself. Um, why should I be told to make that choice? Um, do you see any parallels with that question of assimilation and identity for Muslim immigrants now? You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, no, definitely. Um, I feel it really painfully. And it's especially interesting, I think, in France, because obviously France was such a center for the whole Jewish issue in the um, 1920s, 1930s. Um, and you saw what happened then with France in the World War II. And you look now and the whole argument about can Muslims wear a burqa? Can Muslims show it? You know, the argument about leakti, you know, must everyone be secular in public in France? And it's often focused on Muslim, you know, public shows of faith from Muslim people. I mean, I find it incredibly similar and I feel I find it really painful how people don't learn from the past when it comes to this stuff. We're getting a lot of questions in, Hadley, and I think we'll go to them straight away because some of them are very interesting. Um, Maureen Gilbert asks, what were your resources for this amazing research? <laughs> you know, and she's saying as well, how did you learn about everyone's feelings and motivations? You know, because you do seem quite intimate with them. Yes. So very, very good question. Um, so I, I only wanted to put in true things. So everything I'm saying is stuff that I know that's true. It wasn't me. My dad was always saying you should do this as a novel, but I didn't want to make stuff up. So the resources were extensive. Um, you can find stuff out online. Like I said, the passenger list for the boats and all that and um, censuses. You can find all that online, um, birth certificates, marriage certificates, all that. All that's pretty obvious. Um, the main thing was um, my main resource was a person. Um, I went I went to a bunch of resistance conferences in London when I was starting to do this. And I basically kidnapped um, a historian that I met at one uh, called Daniel Lee, um, who himself has a book out on Thursday called The SS Officer's Armchair. Just a little plug there. Um, and I made him be my researcher. <laughs> um, but I didn't mean like I sent him up to do the work. I mean, he helped me. He showed me what to do. So we spent a lot of time together, Daniel and I, um, driving around France. And he took me to all the archives, uh, military archives, archives of Paris City, archives of the Holocaust, archives of the concentration camps in France, because um, I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. I'm not an academic. So he showed me that. And um, so I'm eternally grateful to him. I also spoke a lot with a lot of um, Holocaust historians, people like Matthew Cobb, Simon Kitson, just kind of think of names there. Um, but the, I guess the main stuff besides Daniel um, was first first uh, person documents, first hand documents. Um, I'm lucky in that my family, even though they don't speak about anything, they hoard things. They are <laughs> they are ruminators. My family. So my grandmother had a shoebox in her closet that I found that had lots of letters and photos. Um, Henri, because he thought he would be called to account, uh, you know, for the rest of his life, that he would be made to justify where he got his money from and what his job was. He kept um, files of what he did basically every day from 1940 onwards. Um, so that was great. So I was able to recreate his life. Best one was my uncle Alex wrote a memoir that was never published um, that also detailed his and his siblings' entire lives. And that's where I got a lot of the feelings from, how people were feeling, because it's all in there and how things looked at the time. So I was incredibly lucky. So I had a lot of academic stuff and a lot of um, first-hand documents. Um, so Oliver Sears is actually joining us this evening. Oh. The man I mentioned um, yeah. at the start. Hi, Hadley. Hi, how are you doing? 
really well. First of all, congratulations on your book. Oh, thank you. Read, um, a few months ago, which um, greatly resonated with me in uh, lots of ways. Um, I am the son of a Holocaust survivor. I'm mm -hmm. based in Dublin. I'm, I'm 10 years older than you. Uh, so I um, it's it slightly it's slightly closer. It's a, I, I, my experience is one generation closer. Mm -hmm. um, there is a question at the end of this, so you, if you can forgive the prolix. Um, I, um, uh, I was most interested, actually, in two parts. First of all, the, the story that you told is, like, like all of our stories, is absolutely compelling. But I was all, most interested in your personal experiences, particularly, for, for example, your visit to Auschwitz. And actually, um, believe it or not, um, my, I, I didn't say, uh, talk about my family publicly until uh, 2013, when Sarah Carey asked me onto a radio program to talk about it. And actually, since then, and funnily enough, also motivated by the change in global politics, I have felt absolutely compelled uh, to stand up and tell my story, um, largely because I want people to behave better. Yes. It's, it's, almost, it's almost as simple as that. Mm. So my question, and I, I promise you there is a question at the end of this, <laughs> is um, finally, uh, how much is the motivation for you speaking out publicly, writing your book about that thing of um, having to speak up to defend this gossamer thin thing we call democracy, where your family and my family know more than most that this is something that absolutely cannot be taken for granted on the one hand. And on the other hand, how much of this is personal therapy? Where <laughs> in, 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 in order, having realized that you are greatly uh, uh, connected to this extraordinary, um, unfathomable part of history, how, how much is it, uh, how much does it help you at a personal level just to get actually into the next day? Um, very uh, excellent, interesting questions, unsurprisingly, of course. Um, so uh, definitely a large part of it was me saying, can we all remember that this happened and how easily this happened? Um, and yeah, I, I feel enormous frustration that people don't take fears of Jews even today seriously. Um, and dismiss them. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, whenever I hear like anti-Semitism, and I mean anti-Semitism, um, you know, there's a tendency on the left to just dismiss it and say, oh, no, it's about Israel. It's like, well, you know, it's fairly um, <laughs> debatable sometimes. Um, so, yeah, and also the lack of you know, there's a lot of talk about identity politics at the moment and people taking ethnic minorities seriously and their issues and their concerns. And it's wonderful to see. And God knows it's overdue. Um, and yet somehow Jews have kind of been left out of that. And I find that mystifying considering that this happened less than a century ago. Um, so I, I did want to remind it and also to show how this personally, you know, how this happens on a real personal granular 
particular level. It's, you know, it's very easy to talk about the 6 million Jews, but can we actually talk about the individuals who are involved in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, personal therapy, yes, no, um, unquestionably. Um, but it was really about my grandmother rather than me working through feelings about my my connection to Jewish history, although that's obviously part of it. I just sort of always felt so terrible about how cold I was to my grandmother and unfeeling I was about her sadness, although I was a child. And I just finally wanted to tell her story, really. I didn't want her to have to keep it in. I mean, she did keep it inside all her life, but I kind of wanted to posthumously let it out, I guess. But, you know, I... Can, I can understand the, I don't know if guilt is the right word you would feel for the way you felt about your grandmother. But I remember too, as a child, when sometimes adults would unload emotions on you that you just weren't able to cope with, you know, and yes. it was easier to step away. So that's all quite understandable. Um, Michelle Sullivan is asking, I wonder if Hadley knows whether Alex knew Picasso. And the answer to that is in the book, right? So you <laughs> a wonderful uh, chapter um, about his connection with Picasso. Uh, Martin Condon is asking, uh, he says it's a fascinating story and that you mentioned that one of the brothers went to university from the village in Poland. Would that have been unusual for a family in such poor circumstances and how could the costs have been catered for? That is a really interesting question and it's not one that I was ever fully able to resolve. I I did try, Daniel and I, and then I also involved another um, researcher who helped me as well, Jonathan. Um, We did try to resolve it. And yes, he was probably on a scholarship, but we couldn't find confirmation from the university in Danzig. Um, But it it actually had quite a high number of Jewish students at the time uh, who would have been largely poor from that part of the world. Mm -hmm. So it is a mystery, but it's likely that he got a scholarship. Um, John Morgan says, hi, Hadley. Good to hear from you. Looking forward to read your book. Did your family or any of your uncle's friends use any of the escape lines during the war or talk about them after the war? So I guess that might have been some of the emigrant routes that you know, Casablanca or whatever these yeah. kind of things we hear about. So I suppose the answer is no, really. No, no they didn't. Yeah. Um, and didn't really talk about it either. They, 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 all, they largely stayed where they were, which was France. And why was that, do you think? Why didn't they try to get out? It's a, it's interesting. I mean, they for them, they felt their lives were there. I mean, this is just Alex and Henri and Sonia. And they loved Paris. They really did think it was beautiful, despite what France had done to them. Um, and it would have been too hard for them, they felt, to start over in America, because as it turned out, my grandfather didn't help them go and wasn't willing to financially support them or help them. I mean, to be fair, he, he didn't have very much money. So they couldn't really start over. So they they stayed in France, which they knew. Now, here's a question I know you're going to love, and it's from uh, Jean Kelly. Um, Do you think the family's love of style and fashion somehow transmitted from Ruben down to you? The photos (laughs) in the book show strikingly stylish people. But that really was was a big uh, theme and it was a big hook, wasn't it? It was. And it was funny. As I was researching the book, I became closer to my cousins, who I didn't really know uh, on that side of the family. And like so many of us, work in fashion. I mean, I don't anymore, but I was on the fashion desk, like Sarah said, for eight years. Um, And that is interesting. And it's still true that a lot of Jews work in fashion, just like a lot of Jews worked and still work in the film industry. And, you know, that's not an anti-Semitic thing to say. I mean, this is true. And why is that? And I am very interested in that. And uh, yeah, so I do look into that in the book. (laughs) 
And, and speaking of your cousins, another attendee is asking, did you make contact with cousins? And I think that turned out to be a key contact for you, didn't it? That's in a way your family grew a little bit because of this book. Would that be fair to say? Uh, no, very much so. I mean, I only got to know my family from researching my family. So that was really nice. <laughs> Um, and Marie just wants to say she doesn't have a question but how much she enjoyed the book she read it during lockdown earlier this year and it was a great way to escape uh, the (laughs) awful news every day so she says thank you Um, now Adrian B is asking one can so oops that is it one can so understand the unhappiness of your grandmother Salah to find out later the people she gave up her freedom and choices as to whom she would marry to save and actually they never needed saving <laughs> one can well understand how alien she found America and how she must have suffered over her, her whole life and it's lovely to hear Hadley and her story we in Ireland need to be made more aware of the suffering of the Jewish oh. people and you're coming on a program that this contributes towards this in no small way so that's a nice and oh, thank person. you um, oh, now Helen Lawrence has asked a good one, and I think I asked Oliver this one before. How do you think your grandmother would have felt about her story being discovered and told? <laughs> I thought about that a lot. Um, and in the end, I decided I couldn't actually think about it. Um, what I was mainly concerned about was how her sons, i.e., my father and my uncle, felt about it. And they were both nervous, and actually, they really loved the book to a degree that I didn't expect. Um, my grandmother never wanted her story to be exposed. Uh, when I found her, shoebox in the closet um, that was not there to be found. It's just that she wasn't able to get rid of it because she had a stroke. So she was incapacitated before she could destroy her mementos. I don't really know how she would feel about this being so public. She was such a self-effacing person. I I think she'd find it very unexpected. Well, I mean, it's obviously very sympathetic to her, but I think she'd find it a little unsettling. Um, There's nothing in there to be ashamed of. Alex obviously would love it. Um, I think Henri and Sonia would be fine. Um, And and so far, everyone in my family who I know likes it. So that's the main thing. I can't really think about the dead, but the the ones who are alive all really like it. Um, Adrian is also asking how the two brothers who survived in France, how did they manage that? And uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about collaboration, you Mm. know, not that they did, but that the way people had to make personal compromises and do whatever they could to survive. And what Mm. factor do you think that played in Henri and Alex's life? Yes. Uh, well, certainly in Alex's life, Henri so had this extraordinary story where he invented a machine that was basically a microfilming machine that would take official documents and shrink them down really tight into, you know, so they were unreadable and very small. And he was secretly traveling around France and saving all these town planning records, people bank, people's bank records, um, maps, you know, everything. I mean, it was thanks to him that Port Havre was able to be rebuilt after the war, that people were able to get back their family money. And he was nearly arrested many, many times. He had a fake um, ID from the black market, but like what he did was really heroic. And, um, and his wife, Sonia stayed in Paris in hiding and she, she was nearly captured many times. Um, at one point she was going back to their old apartment. Uh, they were hiding in a different apartment. They went back to the old apartment to take down the denunciation notes because people would write on the denunciation notes. Sonia now lives at this address. You can go find her. She would go back every day and take them down. And she, as she was walking there, she just happened to look up to her apartment, which was on top floor and saw the concierge you know in france at the apartments they there's always that woman the concierge who sits in the front who's like the doorman um saw her hand outside the window waving like this 
and was telling her to go away because the Vichy police were in the, in the building looking for them. Um, and another time she was arrested and taken to the station. And on the step, she said, here, take my jewelry. It's real emeralds and stuff. It obviously wasn't. She was very poor. Um, and the guy could have taken her jewelry and still, you know, arrested her. And somehow he didn't. And she was able to escape. So she was an amazing person. Alex's story. Well, he went down to the South of France um, and was having a high old time down there for a while. And then he was arrested when Brunner, Alois Brunner came um, and was put on the train and he managed to survive in very unusual circumstances. And there was a lot of collaboration and there was a lot of fuzziness. And one of the things I was really interested in with the Vichy government, because I just assumed before I started the Vichy, you know, they're like the Nazis, like, you know, that's it. Um, and some of them were. And some of them were just like these old Catholic guys who were interested in the sanctity and the purity of France, which meant, okay, they didn't like the Jews so much, but they also didn't really like the Nazis. They didn't really want these Germans. And that created a real conflict of loyalties. And and it meant that some Vichy officers actually helped the Jews because they did not want to be bossed around by all these Germans who are now turning up and thinking they ran the place. Um, And especially if a Jew had been in the Foreign Legion and fought for France, they would help that Jew. Um, which is very, very weird and is a part of Vichy history that I don't think has been covered that much. So I, I was really fascinated to read about that. And on that, I mean, I think a lot of people have huge respect for the German people and, you know, in the way they have reckoned, you know, with the yeah. part that they played in all this. Do you think that has been properly done in France and this issue of who collaborate? I mean, leaving a notice on someone's door, denouncing them and to tell the police that a Jewish person lives there you can't really fit that into a survival mechanism. That just seems like a particularly yeah. evil and unnecessary thing to do. Yeah. Do, do you think the French have reckoned with, with their past and what, and what they did? Well, it took a long time for them to even admit it. I mean, it took till Chirac in the 1990s to even associate Vichy with France. You know, before that, Mitterrand and previous French presidents, they would just say, that was Vichy. This is, that, that's not France. There has been a slow reckoning. Um, but it's, it's interesting how long it took France to even really accept that they had these internment camps in the country. And when I went to go visit Pitivier, where Jacques had been held, I made this whole trip out there, I think it was 2010. And there was basically nothing there. There was like a little plaque, but there was no, you know, you go to Germany, you go to Berlin. I mean, like the memorials are incredible. You know, there was not, it was like just this kind of embarrassment. And, you know, you walk around Paris now and you'll, and you see some plaques and stuff. This is where, you know, three French children lived and they were killed, but nothing like what Germany has done. That is now changing since, since I went to Pitivier, there is now a big museum there. There is like this admit, you know, acceptance that this is what France did. It, it arrested Jews and sent them straight to Auschwitz. Um, the really interesting one is Poland because I went to Poland in 2018 um, and five years before, uh, my Polish guy told me, uh, there was this real kind of acceptance, uh, and the Holocaust Education Trust also helped me. They, you know, there was this real acceptance about Poland's culpability. Okay. Yes. Poland was occupied and, you know, the Germans were terrible to the Poles. Um, but Poland played its part. I mean, Poland was a very anti-Semitic country and a lot of Poles turned in Jews. Um, now, the, you know, when I went to the Law and Justice Party charge, the focus was very much on Polish bravery mm-hmm. and what they didn't want uh, one of the um, 
government officials said at the time was foreign narratives coming out of uh, Auschwitz, which meant they didn't want stories about the Jews. So when you go on the official tour um, of Auschwitz, the focus is on the Polish rebels who are killed and the Jews, like not really mentioned. And certainly not, you know, you don't get any mention of how they were, most of them were killed right away. You know, they're gassed. Um, it, they make it sound more like this kind of strange, like Jewish work camp. Um, and these brave Polish rebels were shot against the wall. So that's really interesting. And it just kind of shows how historical narrative is susceptible to political influence, um, which is why I think it's just so important to keep telling these stories. Yeah, very much so. And and, and what's going on in Poland today really is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking. And I remember Oliver saying once the most dangerous time for his family was after liberation because the Poles yes. were still killing Jews. You yeah. Know. And I mean, they were still doing pogroms. Uh, you know, there are all these horrible yeah. stories of all these Polish Jews who survived the concentration camps coming back to Poland and then being killed. Like, yeah. It was kind of amazing, really, looking yeah. at stories from Poland. Uh, on, a, on a warmer note, Lucy Edwards says thank you so much to Hadley. And she's ordered the book tonight. So that's one extra sale, Hadley. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, um, another attendee has asked a very romantic question about your grandmother's love for the dentist. Did oh. she manage? to maintain contact with them or he with her? Um, well, no one really knows. Um, the only person who knew his name, well, aside from my grandmother, was Sonia, and she never told anyone. Um, she said to my grandfather, to my father, um, your, uh, no, she said to her daughter, uh, Salo left her heart with the dentist. So that, that kind of was that. And I'm, I assume he was probably you know, arrested and killed during the war. No one really knew anything about him. Ah, oh, so sad. Emer Burke was also asking about the dentist. A few of the soft hearts here tonight, we're wondering. Um, so, oh yeah, now Jill Kirby is asking, and someone else asked this question too, did you ever find out what your grandmother and her brothers were quarreling about when you visited that time as a young child? Was it about her being exiled to America or the ordeal that her brothers and their families had experienced during the war? Oh, well, I, I, alas, my, my family is not that kind of straightforward. They would never directly address <laughs> it like that. It would be, you know, old, you know, it would, it would just be literally snapping at each other about petty irritations, but we all know the snapping is about other things of, you know, sediment building over the years of, of other issues. So in, in but, terms of what I, they, I think he said, I think he said even uh, during the war and afterwards, when letters could get out from France to America, they were all complaining about each other the whole oh, time. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I mean, they're trying to survive oh, the Nazis, but they've still got all these petty grievances with each oh, no, other. All the time. I mean, they always had petty yeah. grievances. What they wouldn't do is talk about the big issues. Like, why did you pack me off to America and lie about who this man is? It would be more, why didn't you answer my letter? Um, so, I mean, you know, they're a very typical family, just like anyone, you know, all of you watching, just like your family, really. Yeah. Um, I want to acknowledge a question from Karen McCaffrey and she's interested. Um, you mentioned in the book that Alex had a child, but you chose not to talk about that person that they wanted their privacy. So you, so you wouldn't bring that in. And I guess that's something you really have to do. You know, when people do write these memoirs, I'm sure it can be very upsetting for people in the family who don't want it written. Yes. So I think I call her Charlotte in the book. Um, I, I did know her. Um, she was a part of our lives. Um, she was very much part of my father's life. Um, and But then she just cut off from the family after Alex died in 1999. And I did send her many letters. And I went to her apartment while I was writing the book just to let her know and pass on this message mm-hmm. I was doing this. And she just made it clear she didn't want to be part of it. That's mm-hmm. her choice. It's not, there was no big dramatic falling out. I'm honestly not withholding anything. Mm-hmm. She made yes. this choice. 
to to move on from a family. And those cousins that you came into contact with and are closer to now, you know, were they all pleased with the way that the, the story had come out? They, they didn't have issues about that? No, none. I think they're all just amazed it came out at all because I spent 20 years <laughs> writing it. I think they just thought this was some weird hobby of mine of like going off to weird French archives every holiday. Uh, no, they all loved it, really, which is very sweet because it's very hard to have someone else tell your tell your family story. You always want to tell your own story, and but they've all been wonderful about it. Um, Laura Robachek is asking, um, how do you feel about the way the Germans have dealt with the artwork that was stolen from Jews during World War Two? I don't know much about that. Has has that been resolved, or, or there's still a lot of questions about where art has come from? Oh yeah, I mean, there's always endless questions about this. I mean, not just Germany, it's Holland as well, France too. Um, there's always, you know, some terrible scandal about why does you know, this, this museum has this Klimt and it belonged to this famous Jewish family somewhere. Um, it was a very sad issue. I mean, I, I don't really know even what the solution is. Uh, um, Alex's solution kind of amazingly was to just stash art in various people's closets all over the world. Cause he had an amazing collection of art even before the war. And still now I get messages from people telling me, we found this poster and or picture in a closet and seems to have your uncle's name on the back i mean that is how he dealt with it so he once again got one over the nazis uh patsy murphy comments that there is a great and very long film four and a half hours by marcel O'Fools, uh the sorrow and the pity oh, which yeah. deals with the question of french collaboration during world war ii and deals too with the myths surrounding french resistance so anyone else interested in that should check that out yeah. rosalind asked did mila and her child survive uh, yes, they did. Um, but that is a very sad story, ultimately. But they did manage to survive the war, almost certainly thanks to Sonia. And Angeline, who is 14, wants to know, do you have any advice for young people when it comes to finding out more about family history? Oh, God. Well, first of all, um, don't spend 20 years on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a good start is Ancestry. I think it's Ancestry.com or it's Ancestry.co.uk, um, which is a really good start. I mean, that's got the censuses. That's the censuses. That's got the passenger list. Um, you can find other members of your family on there. Um, so that is a really good start. And also, I would say you're still so young. Talk to your grandparents, your great uncle your great aunts while they're still around. I mean, I wish I'd done that. Yeah. Um, take advantage of them being there while you can. And I think I'd say to people, write letters to each other because yeah. that could end up being the primary source for Absolutely. your grandchildren's research on you if you want them to do research Absolutely. on you. Um, look, it's eight o'clock. I'm just going to put one final question to you again from Jill Kirby. Do you share the view of many French Jews that Israel where increasing numbers have migrated to as anti-Semitism has increased in Paris, is the only safe place for them today? Oh, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I understand why people feel that, and I support the existence of the state of Israel. I don't support the current government of Israel, but I do support the existence of a Jewish homeland. But, you know, I I feel safe in London. I really do. Um, so I, do, I don't feel like it's the only safe place for Jews. There are other safe places for Jews too. Well, look, I'm afraid I do have to wrap it up. And there are lots more questions there, but lots of compliments too as well to you, Hadley. So oh. many congratulations oh. on the book. Hadley, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. 
You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Festival.